from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 14th. Today, why there still isn't another stimulus and what that means for schools desperate for help. Plus, the census comes to an abrupt stop. We should be doing something else right now. We shouldn't be doing this. We should be passing coronavirus relief like the House just did, which was a significant bill that would have been a big help. As the Senate is busy confirming a new Supreme Court justice, lots of Democrats in the hearing are pointing out what the Senate is not doing, trying to pass a stimulus bill. The Senate urgently needs to pass critical financial relief for those who are struggling because of this pandemic. Last week, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, the president's top negotiator in stimulus negotiations with Democrats, announced that the administration was significantly increasing its offer to get a deal to $1.8 trillion they would put on the table. This offer would include $300 billion for states and cities uh, who are struggling with the economic effects of the virus, as well as uh, $400 a week in unemployment benefits for 20 million plus unemployed Americans. The Trump administration's latest offer does include another round of stimulus checks for millions of American families. That's $1,200 per person. The original round of checks included $500 per kid. The latest offer would increase that to $1,000 per kid. Nancy Pelosi has been adamant that the administration's offer is not sufficient. She has in particular pointed to the administration's, um, what she says, lack of a, a strategy on national testing. But there are rumblings of dissent among Democrats who say this is a tremendously important offer. And we don't know if you know we're going to have this offer after the election. Trump seems to be driven by the desire to get a big deal done um, that he can take to the people before the election. And if that deal is not on the table after the election, then a lot of people could be hurting. My name is Jeff Stein. I'm the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. I've been telling, you know, friends who ask about this, you know, I don't want to scare people or sound hysterical, but this is the most nervous I've been since March. It's a really critical and a really kind of scary moment we're in right now. And a lot of people could get hurt if, if this is not resolved well. What do we think is Speaker Pelosi's strategy here? Because as you're saying, other Democrats are pointing out to her that, like, this is still a lot of money. And yes, having a national testing strategy would be very helpful. But at the same time, like, if this is money that's being offered to help Americans get through this time, I mean, it seems like that's a pretty compelling reason to accept it. So what do we think she's trying to get at here? Pelosi's been quite successful at getting the Trump administration to increase its offer and be willing to spend more money in response to the virus. But we're getting to a point now where if she doesn't get a deal before the election, we could be looking at millions of people facing severe cuts to their incomes. In particular, unemployment benefits have already expired. Um, People will not get another round of stimulus checks and workers in distressed industries, airlines, hotels, restaurants could be facing severe layoffs, especially as the winter months approach. 
Yesterday, some of the tensions over whether Pelosi should take a deal spilled out into public view. Pelosi was uh, pushed on her approach in an interview uh, with Wolf Blitzer on CNN, in which she got quite defensive of her strategy. Quote Ro Khanna, a man you know well, and he just said this. He said, people in need can't wait until February. $1.8 trillion is significant and more than twice the Obama stimulus. Make a deal, put the ball in McConnell court. So what do you say to Ro Khanna? What I say to you is, I don't know why you're always an apologist, and many of your colleagues, apologists for the Republican position. And Pelosi was very rankled by that suggestion. Rokana, that's nice. That isn't what we're going to do, and nobody's... There's this really critical period of time after the election, but before the next administration would come in. That's several months. The election is November 3rd. The next president won't be sworn in until January 20th. And there's a lot of concern that Trump would lose interest in any sort of additional federal help for people during that period of time. And that's just when we're expecting to see a huge increase in virus cases and another wave of shutdowns potentially. So that is a really scary period. And if they don't get a deal now, that could mean a lot of hardship for a lot of people. Because the chances are much slimmer that any kind of deal would pass between November 3rd and January if Trump were not reelected. Yeah, people are, are, I think, understandably looking at the president's current push for a deal and thinking that it's at least partially politically motivated. If Trump loses, does he still care about providing a safety net to tens of millions of people? So it's an open question. At the very least, I think he'll be in a position where he feels like he can drive a harder bargain. And if that's the case, then the odds of, of relief getting through are, are even slimmer. The way the White House has been looking at this and things that President Trump has been saying is that, you know, they just think Pelosi is not interested in getting a deal because they think that she's trying to prevent them from having a win before the election. And I'm also curious about where Senate Republicans stand on this, because at least for the last few months, we've been hearing some of their comments about how maybe this is too much money or maybe, you know, this isn't worth putting the government into more debt just to try to pump this money out to businesses that are struggling. So are they on board with this package? This is one of the things you hear the most frequently from House Democrats when you ask them, you know, why not take the $1.8 trillion? What their answer tends to be is, well, we don't even know if Mitch McConnell is on board. There are, to your point, dozens of Senate Republicans who are skeptical of this deal and who have been critical on it. We reported that there was a private phone call between White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Mnuchin and the Senate Republican caucus last week in which a number of Senate Republicans panned this deal completely, said it amounted to a betrayal of sort of longstanding conservative priorities in fighting government expansions. But that said, there are indications that McConnell is at least open to putting it to the floor. McConnell has a number of vulnerable Senate Republicans up in difficult re-election races. And the thinking a lot of Republican strategists that I talk to is, is that these vulnerable Republicans are going to be in a much worse position if they're part of the body that's rejecting the deal. So that's Cory Gardner in Colorado and Susan Collins in Maine. They might put pressure on McConnell to uh, you know, pass what the White House wants. And if there's pressure from Democrats and the White House, it's sort of hard to see how McConnell really would stand in the way. It also feels like these negotiations are happening at such a critical time because it does seem like the wheels are starting to fall off the economy. Yes, things were bad early on in the pandemic and things have started to recover, but we've seen a lot of signs that things could be getting worse again. We've already seen the airlines begin to lay off and furlough tens of thousands of workers and a lot of other similar industries, you know, are are really entering dire straits. Disney has announced that it'll lay off thousands of workers. Other, you know, cinema chains have announced thousands of layoffs and, and that 
trend could really accelerate. We have seen an increase in cases in Europe. We have seen a tremendous surge of cases in the Midwest. And it's, you know, it's not rocket science. You know, people are going to be indoors more and you have the cold weather and flu season's coming around the corner. And Dr. Fauci has been warning about this scenario for months. I think we're facing a whole lot of trouble. That we could see a real dangerous increase in the winter. We have a baseline of infections now that vary between 40 and 50,000 per day. That's a bad place to be when you're going into the cooler weather of the fall and the colder weather of the winter. The last time we entered our lockdowns, the federal government stepped in with a huge increase in unemployment benefits, a huge subsidy through the form of stimulus checks that reached more than 100 million people. And we're looking at a scenario where we face a similar degree of economic pain a similar set of closures in affected industries. I mean, what restaurants are going to be open in, in January? And yet, this time, we could see that same economic pain without the federal support that all the studies I've looked at have suggested have really helped a lot of people through that very difficult time. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. There is so much uncertainty about when or whether another relief package is coming, and it's affecting a lot of different areas of life. One very small piece of that is money for schools. We're going to get our kids back to school because that's where they belong. And and we know based upon... uh, Over the summer, we saw a ton of rhetoric, particularly from the Trump administration, about how important it was to reopen schools. To be clear, the the current CARES Act provided $13.3 billion to support uh, education efforts in states in the midst of the pandemic. We're going to work with Congress. We expect there'll be additional support there. But um, the president's just very serious for all the reasons that we discussed today. Unfortunately, there has not been money that has followed that rhetoric. My name is Mariah Belingit, and I write about young people in schools for The Washington Post. Back in March, right as the pandemic sort of started to take hold and really started to shut down large sectors of our economy, Congress passed over a trillion dollars worth of economic emergency relief that included about $13.2 billion for K-12 schools. So a lot of them used this money to buy things like laptops, items that they needed to make this transition. And one of the things that schools were really hoping for was that they could get money before the start of the school year to help them reopen the schools. Obviously, when you reopen schools in order to mitigate risk, you can't just reopen as you normally would. You need the funding. You can't just say, go back. One of the people I spoke to was Superintendent Austin Butner, who oversees the second largest school district in the country. We've got to invest in keeping schools safe. We have to replace the filtration systems, provide the PPE, do the virus testing, provide the transportation, whatever the needs are to do it. And so the rhetoric exists to go back to school. Great. Thank you. Uh, Where's the money? The district hasn't just been helping its own children. It's also been helping the broader community. We've had to chart our own course. You know, we're providing food because nobody else was. 
not because that's what our mission was. We repurposed from a school lunch program to a community relief effort in addition to 68 million meals. We provided toys and diapers and books and noise-canceling headphones and computers. Schools have been shelling out quite a bit of money. A lot of them made these purchases working under the assumption that either the state or the federal government would help them out in the end. Uh, We do not have the money to sustain this. We're spending reserves, reserves which we would otherwise, we otherwise have budgeted to spend next year. We're spending them now because we have to. I also spoke to James Lane, who oversees schools in Virginia. Schools have so many needs in responding to the pandemic. And one thing that he told me was that there are some school districts that are delaying reopening because they cannot afford the measures that are really critical for keeping students and staff safe. Many have had to do facility upgrades. Many have had to purchase additional buses. They need extra staff. And frankly, we've had to purchase uh, MiFi's, as they're called, to ensure that many of our students have the internet at home. So that's a place where federal dollars and state dollars could really, really make a difference. So I think that's the other piece that people need to understand, that it's, it's not just what we have spent thus far. It is what we will need to spend to keep schools safely open. I spoke to Sonia Santelisis, the CEO of Baltimore City Schools, and she said she's already anticipating what she calls a cliff basically a steep drop-off in revenue. You know, when I sit down and talk to my chief financial officer, we're really looking at next school year. That's when, you know, we'll know, you know, what kind of cuts will be necessary at the state level if there is not an infusion of federal financial support. And so she's frozen spending and let go of about 450 temporary workers. When you're educated, you have to think long-term over the life of a student. You know, it was unpopular, but we made some of the cuts in the spending freeze decisions we did. There have been some pretty grim estimates as to what could happen if schools don't get additional dollars. The American Federation for Teachers estimates that we could see up to 1.4 million education jobs lost as a result of this. In the end, there may be schools that either have to close early or may not be able to reopen because they cannot afford the measures that are critical in keeping students and staff safe during a pandemic. Mariah Balingan is an education reporter for The Post. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. 
See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. On Thursday, the count for the 2020 census will come to an end. The census has become a real political football. It's something usually that's left up to bureaucrats. But this has been a very litigious and tumultuous fight. That's reporter Robert Barnes. He's been covering the Supreme Court order that came out on Tuesday that brings the census count to a very abrupt end. The Supreme Court was acting on an emergency application from the Trump administration. A lower court had said that the census count should continue until October 31st. The administration said that that would make it impossible to meet a December 31st deadline for getting the information to the president. And so it asked the Supreme Court to put a stay on that lower court ruling. Uh, The Supreme Court agreed, and that means that the census count will stop on Thursday. So do we have a sense of how many people could be affected by that, like people who would otherwise have been expected to return the census in the next two weeks? It's a little hard to know. The administration says that it has contacted 99.9% of American households. Now, there has been some concern among civil rights groups and others about the census count who say that it's really unclear whether the the department has reached all of those people or whether it has good data. And as Justice Sotomayor pointed out, even a fraction of a percent of American households that have not been reached could mean hundreds of thousands of people. It's also unclear how evenly distributed this is. So that means may mean that they've done a very good job in some states and not as good a job in other states. And did the court give any indication of why they ruled in favor of cutting the census short? No, it's a it's a frustrating thing sometimes in these emergency applications that the court doesn't usually uh, give a reason for what it's done. It either grants the stay or it doesn't. And so the only one who wrote in this and the only one who noted dissent from the court's action was Justice Sotomayor. And as you pointed out, if there are potentially hundreds of thousands of American families who have not been reached or have not been counted, what are the potential implications of that? Well, the the census count has vast implications for Americans, everything from the way federal aid is distributed to the size of a a state's congressional delegation, because those numbers are used to decide how many members of Congress a state will get. You know, the interesting thing about this fight is that in years past, this has sort of been a practice for bureaucrats, right? I mean, the government just went about the census count. The Trump administration has inserted politics in this in a way by saying it wanted to add a citizenship question at one point. I stand before you 
to outline new steps my administration is taking to ensure that citizenship is counted so that we know how many citizens we have in the United States. Saying that he wants to be able to submit data that excludes undocumented citizens for those reapportionment decisions. And so this has brought the courts into the census count in a way that's really never happened before. So what are the next steps that we should be looking out for? And is there a sense that there could be an appeal of this decision? No, this decision is done. Now, what's interesting about this is, and part of the reason that the Trump administration said there was a rush, is that the president submits this material to the Congress. And the question will be, you know, which president will it be? If it is by this December 31st deadline, it would, of course, be President Trump. But if he loses re-election and if this deadline is pushed back further into January or beyond that, it could be President Biden. And that could mean a whole different thing. Uh, Certainly, Biden would not want to submit material that excluded undocumented citizens. That's something that's never been done before, and Democrats have been critical of that effort. So then because of the Supreme Court decision and because the census is now being cut off short by a couple of weeks, that could ultimately have implications in not only who gets counted or who gets reached by the census, but actually how we decide to count those people, whether or not they're included in our understanding of who lives in this country. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, one thing that I would point out is after President Trump made this announcement in the summer that the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, who is responsible for the census, he announced that this would end on September 30th. Because of this litigation, things were stretched out and extended. Those who brought the challenge to the Supreme Court said that the silver lining in this for them was that at least there was two more weeks of the count. They say that millions more people were included because of those two weeks. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The 2020 election looks really different than any other year. Millions of voters are voting early or voting by mail for the first time, and the rules are changing fast as states figure out how to adjust to the pandemic. If you're having trouble voting, we want to hear from you. The Post is partnering with ProPublica to report on what problems voters are running into as they cast their ballots. Things like very long lines, harassment at the polls, voter ID issues, or inaccurate ballots. These things are really important to hear about. You can text the word VOTE to 81380 to report what you're seeing, and we'll put a link to the tip line in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.